Um, so we're going to continue with uh, Psalm 5. But before we do that, how can I not talk about the Hebrew month of Elul that we're in now, the month preceding Rosh Hashanah and the High Holy Days? I just uh, I can't help myself. I have to discuss it. And, um, but particularly what I wanted to talk about is the connection between this time of the year and the B'nai Noach community, and also um, all the high holidays, the Yomim Noraim, uh, the days of awe, and their relationship to the nations and the B'nai Noach, before we go back to the psalm. Now, this, all this interrelates with prayer. We're still continuing to discuss prayer which is so fundamental um, both to uh, Noach worship and also obviously to Israelite worship, both. So, so key. And um, so we're going to try to link a little bit the Psalm 5 with the discussion that I'm going to have uh, this introductory discussion about uh, the month of Elul the month uh, preceding the 12th month of the Hebrew uh, year, month preceding Tishrei, the uh, first month of the year, and um, also a discussion about, uh, a little bit about the um, days of all, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. So you may, have, you may be familiar with a certain parable about these days, which uh, is a parable from uh, Rabbi Schneer, Zalman of Liadi, he says that the month of Elul, the king is in the field. Anyone ever hear about this? Okay. The well-known Chabad parable story about the king in the field. And I was thinking about this parable, and I said, wow, this is really, this is a month for all the nations. This is a month for the B'nai Noach, this month. And I'll, I'll explain why I say that. So let's just go through the parable. And the truth is, if you think about the parable step by step, you realize the connection yourself. So there's a king, and he is, uh, you know, with his immediate entourage. You know, he's, he's traveling in his, in his um, coach, uh, and he reaches the field, getting, heading towards his palace. He's heading towards the palace, and uh, the field is, is close to a desert or wilderness, but not um, but the king passes through the desert and wilderness, enters into the field. Now, who is in the field? There's all types of commoners there in the field. There's all types of people there. Maybe there's some soldiers, there's peasants, there's artisans. There's all types of people. And when they realize the king is present in the field, so they're obviously, they're, they're excited, and they want to approach the king. Now, the king... The king is not in his chamber. He's not on his throne. Uh, he's not dressed in all his splendor as he is when he is in his palace. You may have one or two guards around him, right, or something like that. A king doesn't travel alone. But it's nothing in compared to the entourage that he has when he's in the palace. Now, when the king is in the palace, you can, not anyone can just approach. You have to be part of his inner circle from his ministers. Unless you have or a special appointment. So you have to be somebody special. You have to be a VIP. You can't just approach the king. On the other hand, in the field, you know, it's kind of like the old motorcade, president in the motorcade. Anybody can see him. 
Anyone can approach anyone from all around. <clears throat> so as the common people are approaching, so the king is smiling at them, and uh, he returns greetings. And this only stimulates a greater warmth and, and um, you know, a, a greater hope in the feeling of the, 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 all the uh, subjects around that they can approach the king and maybe somebody can actually have a, get up there and have a conversation. They push hard enough. So this, with a little bit of my embellishment, is the, is the parable of uh, the king in the field. The idea is this. Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, the king is in all his splendor, meaning Hashem, God, you know, he, he's, he's in a state where if you get into that chamber, you're overwhelmed. You're so wowed and you feel this great fear. But again, really the Jewish type of fear that, that we talk about mostly traditionally, which is awe. You feel this overwhelming wow by, by Hashem's greatness in Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. But those who can reach that level are only, are, you know, only maybe some few. Not everyone can really be touched by that. When you're there, you're overwhelmed by it, and you're kind of like, you're just washed away in it. You're washed in this, this awe and this feeling of really being close to the king. And obviously, what does that engender? What does that bring about? Greater observance, repentance, and, and upright behavior, and also obviously a feeling of great dignity. person is overwhelmed by the experience. But the problem is only some people can have, have a connection to that. On the other hand, in Elul, it's everyone. Everyone who's in the field can have this, can be. Obviously, so you have in the field, you have all different levels. You have the common folks, subject. you also have guests besides subjects. You have a lot of people. You have people that maybe heard about the king that came from other kingdoms that they wanted to see this king. They have a special interest. They heard about his greatness and they came. They can also approach, right? I mean, doesn't that fit into this parable? So that means, in other words, every human being in this time of the year has a special ability to connect with the King of Kings during this time of the year. Every single person. The language of the parable that, that the, the Balatanya, the author of the Tanya uses, is that, that the king, he smiles to everyone, Lakula, every single person. So everyone is included in this. There's no one who's left out. Now, in Hasidus, uh, the Lubavitcher Rebbe and, and his um, forebears, they explain what the meaning of this, uh, what is this king in the field in, in terms of uh, its spiritual implications. Um, so they explain that during this time, just like when a person sees a king, there's a certain trigger, but they have to actually have the guts to approach you know, you're not in the chamber. So similarly, Elul is a time when there is this trigger of inspiration that can be tapped into. But we have to do the rest. We have to put in the energy. We have to go. In other words, the king seems far, and we have to really work on getting there. It's not, he's not close, but we know he's there. And to me, it seemed to me that this is really a paradigm about the B'nai Noah and your community and your history and things that you've experienced. You know, it's this idea of, of, of you know, 
coming from other places and you know um, discovering about Hashem and Judaism. And, but you know, there's something there. There's kind of an inspiration, but a lot of work has to go into you know approaching it and 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 getting closer. And so it seems to me this is the paradigm of the energy of El is so is so connected to the experiences of the Bnei Noach community. And um, it's really, it's really, a, um, you know, the king, he gets a special fondness from this experience because even though in his uh, palace and in his chamber, you know, there's, there's this, all this pomp and protocol but everyone who's there is part of the entourage, is part of the king's, uh, you know, ministry, whatever, however you want to call it. He's part of, but it's more natural. But for people to approach in this circumstance, it's something unique. It's something special. And this really, really touches the king's heart specifically. So um, this is also something that Chabad Hasidah speaks of like a lot, this idea of chidush. This idea that the repentant who is coming, who is in the field, and the field is a kind of a concept, again, there's a distance. In fact, people in the field, the next stopover, as I said, is the desert. The desert is the, the place that is the farthest from God, in which the, the Hasidic works talk about. That's a place where there's no godly revelation at all. It's completely desolate. But from there, people can see the king and they can approach they can run over out of that area and into the the um, the field area, which is uh, not the wilderness, but it's not full blown civilization as a city, and certainly not the king's abode in his palace. So, it seems to me this is just an incredible, uh, um, you know, just seems to speak to me. Spoke to me so much about uh, about the Noah community, but really the whole this whole um, our whole generation and all, every single one of us are repentant. We don't, you know, it's not a generation of, of saints. Of, of um, it's a generation really of people coming back, and so too within the Jewish community, people returning, people really um, finding out about their roots in an environment uh, in a society where you know. Um, there was so much, there's so much ignorance about Judaism. So really, Elul is the time. Elul is um, what this generation is all about. I'd almost say that from the, the power, the battery of Elul, there are branches that go out through the whole entire year from this month. So. There are two types of, of fear in Hasidic thought. One is called yiratata. It's also a Kabbalistic term. So there's the lower form of awe and yira ilah. Then there's a higher form of awe. The lower form of awe comes from observing the creation and realizing that everything is vitalized by God. And by deeply meditating on that until it becomes a reality inside the person. The second type, Yira is a realization that really there's nothing but God in the world. 
There's only him, and everything else is really nullified to God. So Hasidus explains that the first level, anybody can attain that. That's something that a person can meditate upon. We're all related to the world. So we can observe the creation. We can observe everything, including our own selves, our own bodies, and everything around us. And we can get wowed by that once we understand that all of this comes from Hashem. On the other hand, the idea that really everything's nothing, everything is somehow nullified, because since God is creating everything ex nihilo every second, that's not something we can, we can hear it, but we don't really, we don't really internalize it. it. Can't be internalized. In fact, it's almost paradoxical to internalize because then we, we don't feel a self and then our ability to act is, is a bit detracted from. So, so um, Hasidus explains that the second type is a gift. The higher type of fear is a gift that comes from God. A person can't achieve that on their own. But once they work very hard on the first level, they've been given the second level as a gift. So the first level of fear is a fear that can be accomplished in the month of Elul. And the blowing of the shofar in the month of Elul can assist that. Since a person come to that level of awe from the creation. The second level of awe, that's from Rosh Hashanah and Kippur, that's a gift. That's not something that a person can gain on their own. That's something that comes from God's compassion. <clears throat> but once again, but what's really the, the, um, the root? What's really God's desire? God's desire is to see man make it on his own. So even though in a certain sense, there's a certain, there's the reward of the final awe that comes out of Rosh Hashanah and Kippur, but from God's perspective, in a certain sense, the main thing is Elul. The main thing is man. You know, there's a, a famous saying that um, if you look at the Torah, the Torah calls Passover Chag HaMatzos, Chag HaMatzot. You know, but in the Jewish vernacular, it's always called uh, Pesach, you know, Pesach. So what's the difference? So, so Chaga Matzos, the, the referring to the matzah, that's something the Jewish people do. So God is referring to the festival in terms of the mitzvah of the of children of Israel. On the other hand, the word Pesach is referring to God's passing over in the miracles. So in other words, God is busy thinking about what the children of Israel are doing, what man is doing. And man is thinking about what God is doing. That's the way a relationship should be, right? So similarly, God's pleasure comes from Elul. God's pleasure comes from seeing people struggling and pushing to try to see, even from very far, to try to get close to him. And this is what he really cares about. This is what, why, in a certain sense, God really cherishes the exile and the, uh, the darkness, meaning to say a limited amount of godly revelation, because it's during that period that a person really has to latch on to faith and really has to use their own strength in order to, in order to uh, connect with Hashem. But even there, as we've said, it begins with Hashem does give the ability. The king comes into the field, so there is a stimulus, there is a... Rechitzitus refers to it as Anasinas Koach. Hashem gives, there's a potential strength there that helps a person, but then the action has to be our own. And um, 
So I think there's a great connection there. So, so that was item number one that got me thinking. The second item I wanted to share with you has to do with a verse that I'm sure also you're, you're familiar with. That is in Isaiah 56. No, it's not in Tehillim yet. We'll get there, but not, not yet. Um, and that is the famous verse that states, it's actually a few verses. I will bring them to my holy mountain. Uh, it's halfway through Isaiah uh, 56. So it says, I'll bring them to my holy mountain. I will gladden them in my house of prayer. Their elevation offerings and their feast offerings will find favor on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. So this whole, um, this whole chapter is talking about primarily two types of people. As Isaiah begins talking about the end of days, so he speaks about someone who's barren, and he speaks about the convert. And he speaks about how the convert will say, Hashem will utterly separate me from his people. He's afraid of being alienated. He's afraid of being kept out and having no portion. And so Isaiah says this wonderful promise that Hashem will bring the foreigner or bring the convert to his holy mountain and will gladden him there in his, his house of prayer with their offerings and that Hashem's house to be called a house of prayer to all the peoples. This verse is said so many times throughout the high holy day, throughout the days of all. First during the slichos, first during the, the uh, atonement prayers before Rosh Hashanah, and the week leading up to Rosh Hashanah. This is always said in the slichos prayer, slichot. Right before we say the, ver verse, the verse, hear our voice, Shema Koleinu, we always read these verses. And um, sometimes people forget, I actually was speaking to a friend, sometimes people forget these verses is actually directed to the convert. This isn't directed to Israel. It's directed to the convert. This whole, all these verses, I will bring them to my holy mountain, talking to the convert. He's talking to people that, that are falling into a despair, that they, they really wish to serve God, but they, they feel they're in so much pain. Like the, the person who's barren, they want to serve God, but they want to have children. They want to have a continuity, and they don't have it. Obviously, that's also a source of alienation, because all their, their neighbors and friends have children, and they don't. Similarly, the converts coming from far, doesn't speak the language possibly. He feels, my family were different. I'm coming here. Are they going to reject me? and so on and so forth, is, will God reject me? And there's this promise here, no. Bahavi Osim, that I will bring him. So 
Actually, that's a very powerful phrase because it's God saying, I will do this. I will bring you. You know, so just as we were saying before, there's this idea on Elul that the emphasis is the acts of man. It appears in this case that God is saying, I'm going to do it. I'm going to give you the energy and I'm going to create the situation in which the converts will come to me. I will help you. I will give you tremendous divine providence and I'll bring you there. And this is an important refrain throughout the, throughout the days of awe. Throughout Yom Kippur, we continue to say these verses through the Mincha, the afternoon prayer. Again, we repeat these verses again and again. So it's part of the dream of, of the days of awe where we're thinking about days to come that um, will all come together um, to serve God together. And that will be a true time of brotherhood. And um, that's why we repeat this verse again and again and again. And we don't forget about the convert on in the days of awe. We also, as you all well know, uh, talk repeatedly, repeatedly on through all the, um, the Amida, the standing prayers of uh, days of awe, about the fact that all of mankind will turn to serve Hashem in the days to come, and we ask God to bring that about. Well, the, again, the idea is that Hashem manifests, manifests himself in the days of awe as a king, as a king of the whole world, not just of the Jewish people, not just of the righteous, but of everyone. And a king has a relationship with his subjects. The king cares about his subjects. He's there to govern them, and um, not like a despot, but as someone who cares for their needs, someone who keeps order, but also makes sure that there is sustenance for them, etc. And so there's a relationship. The subjects serve him and provide for the needs of, of the nation, and, and bring honor and awe to the king and bring him gifts, etc. At the same time, the king serves them. And um, that's the dream of the, the days of awe, Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, that we pray to Hashem that those days will come, that this that is in kind of in potential, that's something that unfortunately sort of remains in the synagogue, that remains a hope will be realized. So these days, really more, I think, than all year, are days, are days for everyone, of all the nations of the world. And, um, you know, there's a, <laughs> I think I remember hearing that, um, you know, it's a, right now, it's, it's a coronary event for the king where, uh, you know, only his own kids show up. But there'll be a time when everyone will, will gather around and everyone will, will uh, say, Hashem yimloch lo'olamvei. Well, Hashem reigns forever and ever. So, just really wanted to begin with these things. And I also wanted to point out something interesting about this verse, when it says that about, when it talks about the temple, here in uh, Isaiah 56, in that it refers to the temple as a house of prayer. Multiple times. 
First, it says, I'll bring them to my holy mountain. Then it says, and I will rejoice them in my house of prayer. Then it talks about their offerings, the burnt offerings and and the peace offerings will be desirable on my altar. But then we say again, because my house will be a house of prayer for all the nations. So it's interesting that, you know, we're talking about prayer. We've been talking about prayer for um, a few months now, once a month, but yes, it's been a few months. And, um, and this is what the temple is referred to in reference to the nations, a house of prayer. So you see this central point, how important prayer is in, in the nation's relationship with God. That when we speak of that house, in reference to the nations, it's called a house of prayer. We don't see that language anywhere else, I don't think. It's always called a house that's chosen. I mean, if you've seen this week's, uh, well, last week's Torah reading and so many of the readings in Deuteronomy, again and again, Moses refers to the temple as the place that God shall choose. The place that God shall choose. Again and again, it's referred to in that way. It's also referred to as God's holy place. But it's never called the house of prayer. But here, Isaiah refers to it in speaking to the nations as a house of prayer seems to imply that even though the nations bring, um, you know, there's their offerings there, but the emphasis is they'll be able to come there and pray and God will listen. And um, it's also well known that in the times of Solomon, this was the case. And it says that uh, the Talmud tells us that when Ananji would bring a sacrifice or bring a prayer, uh, make a prayer there, that they would always be answered. What they asked for was always answered there, as opposed to a uh, Jew. Well, I guess you can understand it. You know, when a guest comes, and you have to treat them extra nicely. But um, it also is brought that it says that, well, a, um, uh, a Jew is expected to understand that he may not be worthy, but that Someone, a foreigner, may not understand that distinction. And so, therefore, in order to, you know, glorify God, um, the prayers are always answered. But the bottom line is, is that, again, there's a certain uniqueness in the relationship. There's a certain, there's something special, you know. On the one hand, there's something very deep and intimate about a relationship with family. But on the other hand, there's, there's also something special and, and it draws attention when there's a guest or when there's someone who's coming on their own. You've probably heard about the famous Midrash about the convert being uh, uh, resem- uh, referred to as a deer. I don't know if I'm explaining that right, but let me, let me, let me tell you the parable. So there was a king that he had a stable or he had a, a Anyway, he, I forgot the exact word now because I'm not very agriculturally inclined, but he, he had the enclosure for cattle. And within that, within the grazing animals there that he had, there was a deer. There was a buck that joined, that joined his grazing animals and would uh, mix among them. And uh, 
voluntarily live in, in that in, within the same uh, you know enclosure enclosure with the uh, with his cattle. And so the king really, really fell in love with this deer because he said, listen, all the other animals, they're mine and I feed them and they're domicile, that's their nature, they come here. But this deer has chosen on his own to become close to me. And therefore I'm gonna go, I'm gonna feed him myself. And he spent, he spent, he showed him special attention. So there's this concept of, of when someone comes from afar, you know, when someone, when it's not so natural, that's really part of God's deep desire, specifically for those individuals and for those neshamas. And it's something that God really takes great, great pleasure in. So that's what El is all about. And the future time when we'll all come together as brothers to serve Hashem in peace and in harmony. That is the vision of the, the days to come. But the spark of that, from the fact that we pray about that on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur shows that that energy is with us now too, in those days. And that we can connect to that in that time of the year, in this upcoming time of the year, God willing. And obviously that begins to sprout and bloom now in this month. This whole month is a precursor for those coming days. So, in that way, this whole time period is like an L, if you think about it. Because the days to come, the times of the Mashiach, of the Messiah, and the end of days, that's kind of uh, hinted to, and that's the whole energy of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. That's what that's about. That's what we're talking about all the time in the prayers there. So that's the nature of Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur is the days to come when God will be revealed as king to the entire world. But the days before, what we call Ikbasa de Meshicha, you know, the, the ankle, the end of the exile before the redemption is an Elul type period where the king is in the field. I think this, all these years, every single day, is a king in the field time. Where and this is what we're seeing. So many people, you know, um, Jew and non-Jew are, are are finding Hashem. And what does that tell you? This is a king is in the field time, and that's very very precious to Hashem. And and surely, if if somebody would approach the king, and speak to him, and show his great admiration. The king would probably say, we've taken to such an extent that he'll tell him, I want you to come visit me in my palace. I want you to come. I'll remember you, and you just tell, you tell the guards and so on that, that I instructed special instructions that you should come and see me next week when I'm in the palace. So this is the time, and we should all make use of it, come close to Hashem, and um, there's so many distractions, you know, as we just go through our daily lives. But we need to find the silence. We need to, to enter into a field. If you think about it, a field is, as I mentioned before, it's someplace that it's not 
the uncontrolled chaos of a wilderness, but it's outside of civilization. So it's a place of meditation. It's a place of calm. So we all need to make a little bit of that space and um, think about correcting our actions, our thoughts, our speech, our deeds, to improve them and bring ourselves closer to the king. Okay.